said, let me read the teaching text for today. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5 from verse 38 all the way through to verse 48. This is Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, talking about a better way to live on planet Earth. And this is what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Good morning. That text hits hard. You feel it. When you hear it read, you're like, wow, Jesus. Okay, okay. No qualifiers. He just says it and then lets us wrestle with it. And there's a lot to wrestle with in the passage we heard read. And some of you have been wrestling. It raises all kinds of questions. What about this Jesus? What about that Jesus? All these issues and scenarios come to mind. It's very complicated once we try to take it seriously and live it out in the real world. And so Daryl and I were talking, and the teaching team conferred together, and we decided we would say five things that we don't think Jesus is talking about when he says, don't resist an evil person and love your enemy. Five things we think Jesus doesn't mean. So by way of introduction, I'm going to give you five points. And we have a slide right here. What this text doesn't imply doesn't justify abuse. Doesn't necessarily apply to every context doesn't displace the need for governing authorities, doesn't mean there's no judgment against our enemies, and then lastly, doesn't allow us to be an echo of another person's conduct. And so I want to walk you through each of these as part of the introduction. So hope you brought a lunch. Because, uh, and so number one, first, as Daryl said last week, this scripture, Jesus is teaching Thou shall not resist evil. It doesn't justify abuse. It can't be used to legitimize or justify a man abusing a woman or parents abusing children. Verbal and physical abuse like this will not be tolerated by our church in leadership or anywhere else. Jesus' teaching is not trapping a woman, a man, or children in a situation with a dangerous, abusive person and authority. That would be bad. Jesus is good, and so is his teaching. Second, 
this teaching doesn't necessarily apply to every context. And so we need to be careful about applying Jesus' teaching to situations he would not have had in mind in the original context. To extend his teaching to world wars or conflicts involving nations with weapons of mass destruction or complex geopolitical relationships between modern-day nation-states that didn't exist in their current form until the 19th century is to, by definition, take Jesus' teachings out of context. And when I say context, I'm speaking to the cultural situation in which Jesus offered his teachings. So that begs the question, what then is the context? Well, C.S. Lewis writes this on the passage in question. I think the text means exactly what it says, but with an understood reservation in favor of those obviously exceptional cases which every hearer would naturally assume to be exceptions. Does anybody suppose that our Lord's hearers understood him to mean that if a homicidal maniac attempting to murder a third party tried to knock me out of the way, I must stand aside and let him get his victim? I, at any rate, think it impossible they could have so understood him. Indeed, as the audience were private people in a disarmed nation, the frictions of daily life among villagers were more likely to be on their minds. They might have thought about the Romans, and they might have thought about taking up arms against Rome, but the pri primarily, I think, they would have been considering the frictions, the conflicts amongst people they knew. I think Lewis is basically correct, given the nature of the examples that Daryl unpacked for us two weeks ago. Jesus gives examples from everyday life on the scale of interactions between neighbors and people who have evil intent and are bent on making our lives difficult. Now, of course, and this is fascinating, in the 20th century, leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. applied Jesus' principles of nonviolence to wider social issues. And so Dr. King intentionally marched into the reach of the most vicious, overtly racist of sheriffs in the Jim Crow South in hopes they would bring out the fire hoses and unleash the dogs. And when people witnessed nonviolent protesters, some of them women and children, viciously attacked by dogs, the callousness of the police and the evil of racism was exposed and the moral consciousness of the nation was galvanized. In other words, Jesus' principles of nonviolence work to affect positive, widespread societal change in overturning overtly racist laws. And that is beautiful, and that is moving, and that is powerful, and it's worth studying more. Nevertheless, we must be careful in applying these principles to world wars or conflicts involving nations with weapons of mass destruction or other global realities that Jesus was not imagining when he uttered these words because his listeners could have never conceived of these realities in the first place. Number three, point three of the introduction. Jesus' teaching doesn't displace the need for governing authorities. And so Daryl briefly referenced this two weeks ago when he said this idea of eye for an eye was meant to be a guiding principle for ancient law courts, for authorities, not permission for individuals to take revenge. And in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says this, Everyone must submit himself to governing authorities, 
For there is no authority except that which is God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For just rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. For the one in authority is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, when human laws contradict God's law, we have grounds for civil disobedience. We must obey God over people. But in this passage, Paul is writing about just rulers who use force righteously to stop evil. The authorities bear the sword to punish evildoers. If you're an evildoer, this is bad news. If you're harmed by an evildoer, this is beautiful news. You love this. And one of the ways that God overcomes evil with good is through the just, proportionate use of force. He uses the sword to punish evildoers. This may involve appropriate displays of force through policing or military, which Christians have historically participated in. And this understanding allows Jesus to be consistent with himself when he praised Roman centurions without reservation, and permitted his own disciples to carry swords. It's also consistent with the picture of Jesus as a conquering king, treading the winepress of God's wrath as depicted in Revelation 19, which leads to my fourth point. Fourth, it doesn't mean that there's no judgment against our enemies. So in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul writes these words, really embodying in some ways what Jesus was talking about. He says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't know what that means, but I like this last part. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so we're invited by God to join him in his cosmic conspiracy of overcoming evil with good. But it's in the context of trusting ourselves wholly to the just judgment of God. And so think about forgiveness for a moment. Someone sins against you. No laws were broken. It's not a legal matter. But they really hurt you. And it wasn't right or fair what they did. And you attempt to forgive them by the grace of God. You cancel their debt. It's easy to believe or think in that moment that our forgiveness means they will get away with what they've done. But that's not true. In forgiving someone who really has hurt you, you're trusting that God will heal and deal. Heal you and deal with the perpetrator. Like either the offender will be convicted of their sin, repent, trust in Christ, be filled with the Spirit as a believer, so changing their affections that eventually, who knows how long, they'll seek restitution with you, if possible and appropriate. Or... 
They won't repent, and God will deal with them in some manner. Trust that. But don't repay evil for evil. The Lord will deal with unrepentant evil because God is good. Because God is good. God will do this because evil is evil and evil won't stop itself. Evil must be stopped by the good and it will only be completely stopped by an all-good God. Lastly, number five. His teaching doesn't allow us to be an echo. We heard that phrase two weeks ago. We must come back to this profound challenge that Jesus' teaching on turning the other cheek and enemy love lays at our feet. And Daryl explained it brilliantly by quoting E. Stanley Jones and his insight about the three levels at which humans interact. And it applies to our text today. So let me remind you of the three levels. We have a slide, I believe. There is the demonic level, the legalistic level, and the kingdom level. And so when we return evil for good. When good comes our way and we respond with evil, that's the demonic level. When we return evil for evil and good for good, we're living at the legalistic level, which is where most of us naturally live, right? Like, I respond to hate with hate, anger with anger, love with love, kindness with kindness, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, tit for tat. But the kingdom level that Jesus calls us to is where we return good for evil. It's radical. That under Jesus' rule, we join God in his conspiracy of overcoming evil with good. In Jesus' kingdom, the other person's evil conduct does not determine our own. We refuse to be an echo. That's what that phrase means. Their conduct doesn't determine my own. We refuse to contribute to the sum total of evil in the world. You see, if I respond to hate with hate, it just leads to more hate. Hate doesn't disappear. It just spreads into my own character. And Jesus is like, instead of being an echo of hostility, we're invited to mirror God's grace, reflecting to the world his goodness. This is what Jesus invites us to. And so we're going to see that in the passage we're studying today. It impacts how we treat our neighbors, our boss, our co-workers, the family members who don't agree with us, how we engage with social media, write emails, talk to critics, engage in disagreement, all of that. Our friends uh, who rented the floor above us in the house we live in, they recently moved out because they bought a duplex. And the day they moved into their new place, the neighbor came over like they're sharing a wall with, the neighbor came over and handed them a five-page letter filled with grievances between him and former residents. Welcome to the neighborhood. I guarantee Jesus' teaching applies to that situation they just bought into. It impacts everything. And so let me read it to you again because we've been away from it for a while. Here it is. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain 
on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Three observations about this text. Five-point introduction, three observations, one great time had by all. Okay, so <laughs> here we go. And I will tell you some stories, okay, in a minute. Just Okay, first, nowhere does the Old Testament law command people to hate their enemies. The Levitical law, chapter 19, verse 18, says, love your neighbor. But nowhere does it say hate your enemy. Now, people hated their enemies in the Old Testament. Just read some of the Psalms. But it wasn't commanded in the Levitical law that Jesus has been referencing throughout these teachings. But in Jesus' day, this will be hard to imagine, but in Jesus' day, some define neighbor to mean one's own tribe. Those who are of the same ethnicity, ideology, or religion. In this context, fellow Jewish people. There was a first century Jewish monastic community who lived by the Dead Sea. And they explicitly taught, it's in their documents, quote, love the brothers, hate the outsiders. And so Jesus might be responding to this wrong interpretation. And instead, Jesus tells us to love our neighbors and our enemies. If you look further down, back at the text, it says, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you have? Even tax collectors do that. Now, Jesus, he loved and spent time with tax collectors. But his original audience would have despised them because they were cheats and they extorted money and they were in league with Rome. They were traitors to their fellow Jewish people. And his point is that even the tax collectors that you view as moral scum love those who love them. I'm calling you to something higher. Don't be an echo. Be a mirror of God's grace. Don't just love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Second observation. In Scripture, love is not just a feeling or even primarily a feeling. You will never feel charitable to your enemy. If love is just a feeling, it will feel impossible to love your enemy. But in the Bible, love is a verb. It's an action word. Love is a decision, a commitment. Love is the desire to seek the best for another person. You could say love is to desire their ultimate flourishing in a right relationship with God and to act toward that end. That love is to desire their ultimate flourishing in right relationship to God and then act toward that end. Jesus says his followers are to have this posture towards their enemies. To quote Sky Jathani, he says, The narcissist loves himself. The nationalist loves his tribe. The activist loves his cause. The idealist loves his thought. The humanist loves his concept of humanity. But... The Christian loves the irritating person right in front of him. And all those other things. I love that last line. The Christian loves the irritating person right in front of her. So practical and challenging. I love the echo that's happening as well. Is this to illustrate the don't be an echo, but respond? Anyways. 
Who knows? Who knows? But here's the point. Love in the Bible isn't abstract. Like, love is concrete. Love is as concrete and demanding as your neighbor next door. Like, it's easy to love humanity in the abstract or your enemy in the abstract. Like, humanity as an idea doesn't throw loud parties or park in your spot or leave irritating notes on your windshield if you park in their spot or gossip about you at the office or take credit for your work or post antagonistic, simplistic, misleading memes on social media about your cherished beliefs. But your neighbor or your coworker or your family member might do all of those things. Your enemy might do all of those things and enjoy it. But we're not called to love humanity as an idea. We're called to love our neighbor who's acting like an idiot and our enemy who seems downright evil. In other words, we're called to will their ultimate good and act toward that end. It's less of a feeling and more of an action. Third observation, part of this action, part of this love expresses itself in praying for those who persecute us. Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So I'll tell you a story here. Uh, over a decade ago, uh, my wife, Deandra, who is a teacher, she had a student. So this is over 10 years ago. She had a student that gave her no end of trouble. Persecution is a real stretch, uh, but I want to bring it home to where most of us are living. Then I'll bring it back to what Jesus was saying. Not persecution, but deeply irritating nonetheless. Like ruining her days. And she brought up this situation to me when we were dating. Okay, we weren't married yet. And she was telling me all about the student. And I said, oh, you should pray. You should pray for the student. And she didn't love the encouragement in the moment. Um, but she took it. And, and she started to pray about the student. So it was like, God, give me strength and wisdom to deal with the student. It's a good thing to pray. Uh, but I interrupted her mid-prayer. And I stopped her and I said, no, no, no. Don't pray about her. Pray for her. I was the worst, okay? Just, all right, like, let me just get into the middle of that prayer and correct it as you're, you know. So anyways, this is what happens when you date a pastor. I was a youth pastor. Didn't know what I was doing, right? All that stuff. Uh, I'm like, hey, don't pray about her. Pray for her. Like, pray that she would experience love. Pray that she would encounter God. Pray that the hurts in her life would be healed. Pray for protection in her family situation. Pray until you pray. Pray until you mean it, because as soon as you mean it, your posture towards her will change. Pray like you want to introduce her to your heavenly father. And to my credit, a little bit, like oh, over time, it seemed like it was wise pastoral counsel because her interactions with the girl started to change as her posture and heart changed as she prayed for her. Now, pray like that for real persecutors, Jesus says. Pray like that for real enemies. Prayer like that changes us to those who try to steal our joy and our peace and our sense of well-being, to those who persecute us physically or emotionally. Pray that they would repent. Pray that they would encounter the love of God. Pray that they would experience his grace in a transformative way. Pray that they would be turned from an enemy into a family member because that is the way of Jesus. 
We heard last week, Good Friday, Jesus is on the cross and he prayed, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. He prayed for his persecutors. And we say, well, that was Jesus. But it wasn't just Jesus who prayed for his persecutors. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. He is executed for following Jesus. And as he's dying, he prays, don't hold this sin against them. Or in other words, forgive them, Father. And in the crowd, overseeing the execution, the stoning, is Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church. Stephen prays for him with his dying breath and the crowd around him. Jesus hears that prayer, and Jesus confronts Saul, who's renamed Paul, and he's turned from a persecutor of Christians to a pastor, a church planner, someone who writes 13 letters that got into your New Testament. The man who wrote the line, do not repay evil for evil, overcome evil with good because he experienced it himself and it changed everything. We never know what will happen when we pray earnestly for those who persecute us. Even enemies can become family. But regardless of the results, when we follow suit, we reflect the character of God. Right? We're no longer an echo. We're a mirror of God's common grace. It causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. More than that, we reflect God's saving grace because we were enemies of God in our sin. And God loved us into friends. His kindness led us to repentance. His spirit melted our cold hearts and freed our stubborn wills so that we could follow him into life. We love our enemies with the same hope in our hearts, and in doing so, we're not an echo, we're a mirror. In doing so, we don't repay evil for evil, which just leads to more evil. Instead, we overcome evil with good by the grace of God. And just when we feel we can't possibly live this way, Jesus says this line, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we can read that as another crushing demand following a long list of crushing demands. Another impossible, impractical command from Jesus. But this isn't another crushing burden. It's a promise. Scholar Frederick Bruner writes, quote, The Greek future tense verb, you shall be, is first of all a promise. You miss it in that translation. It's first of all a promise. This is a promise from Jesus to us that he will do it whole, complete, mature, perfect. He will do it. He promises to do it. And we get to participate and lean into that promise in the present. I love what Tim Keller writes uh, in his book on death. It's called On Death. It's not a cheery read but there's real hope in it. He says this, you see, there's a real you, a true self down inside you, but then there are all the flaws and weaknesses that bury and mar and hide it. But the Christian hope is that the love and holiness of God will burn it away. 
that the love and holiness of God will burn it away. On that day, we're going to see each other and say, I always knew you could be like this. I saw glimpses of it. I saw flashes of it. Now look at you. My wife can't wait for this moment. She's in more of a rush than the Holy Spirit. But more seriously, sometimes, um, you know, when I think about this quote, I think about it in light of my dad who passed away in the fall. This promise, you will be perfect. Because there were obvious cracks in my dad's character. He wouldn't mind me saying that. But I remember in his last months during the summer, he would like to sit outside on the patio. And uh, there were some neighbors who would smoke out front. And he asked them not to. But I guess they forgot or didn't care. And so he would pretend, like in his house coat probably, he would pretend to water the plants while flicking the hose to spray them. So he'd just be like, and they're like, and I'd, he'd do stuff like that, and I would make fun of him. I'm like, Dad, I just, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I feel like that's not the way of Jesus. Um, so there was stuff like that. And it's true of all of us, right? Like apparent flaws, deep-seated wounds. And some of them were very obvious in his last days. Like my mom and sister caught the bad end of him at times. And I so badly wanted him to be my hero, and sometimes I was disappointed. But I can't wait to see him again and go, Look at you now, Dad. Like, I saw glimpses of it. We all did. But look at what God has done with you. He said you would be perfect. He promised it. And now you're living into it. And he'll say the same thing to me, right? Like, there's, there's a real you, a true self down inside you, sometimes buried by the flaws and sins and weaknesses. Jesus promises that the love and holiness of God will burn it all away one day, and we will say to one another, I always knew you could be like this, perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, whole, complete, restored, made new. And so think about the context again. Like, how do I love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me? I'm going to pray and act with the awareness that there's a real them buried underneath all that anger and apathy and hostility that the holiness and love of God can burn away if they place themselves in his hands. And I will look for glimpses of that real them now. And if I do that, I can even weep for my enemies. Bill Johnson from Bethel Church has a practice of praying for his harshest critics every time he goes up and takes communion, sometimes through tears. I think enemy love supernaturally by the grace of God is made possible or helped when we look for glimpses of who God created people to be now. We look at them, not just for who they are, but for who they could be healed and made whole in him. I will be perfect. You will be perfect. Not yet, of course, but the progress starts now. And so the invitation, even of these last weeks, is to submit to the treatment together. Think back on teachings about anger and reconciliation. Lust, turning the other cheek, loving our enemies. Let's pursue a kingdom righteousness deeper and more profound than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by the grace of God that will make us as perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect.
That's where we're going. And that's where we will end up. It's a promise. And until that day, we come to the table to be reminded about the grace of God. And the team can come up. And this is something we do as a regular rhythm. Because one of the things that happens as we talk about anger and lust and marriage and enemy love, one of the things that happens is that we're brought to the end of ourselves afresh. We're brought back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the spiritually inadequate. Blessed are those who believe and seek to obey Jesus' commands, but realize I cannot do it on my own strength, in my own flesh. I need the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in my life to help me, to aid me. I need to participate with it. And along the way, when I fail and mess up, I need to be reminded about the grace of God. I need to be reminded about Jesus, who says on the cross, It is finished. You are forgiven. I've done all that needed to happen for you to be reconciled to me. And I need to be reminded of that every day of my life. And I need to be reminded of that every time I gather with the people of God. That Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said, This is my body took the bread. He said, he broke the bread. He said, this is my body given for you. And then he took the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Eat and drink this in remembrance of me. And as you do so, you proclaim my death and the meaning of my death and the significance of my death until I come again and make all things new. And so we come to the table this morning and we respond in worship this morning knowing how deeply loved we are. And none of our obedience is about earning his love and favor. All of our obedience is a response to the love and favor he's given us already in Jesus as a gift. So let's enjoy that gift together. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you didn't just teach these words. You live these words perfectly on our behalf. And you went to the cross for us. And you were scorned and you were mocked and you were spit on by your own creation. The people you gave breath used their breath to despise you. And yet you responded, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. You responded with grace. And so we respond to that grace right now, and we use our breath to sing your praises, to acknowledge how worthy you are, to acknowledge how good you are. And we also come inadequate and unable to fulfill this command, this kingdom ethic of enemy love, apart from your strength, apart from your power, apart from a deep work in us. 
And so, Jesus, we invite you through the Holy Spirit to come, to minister, to do that deep work in our hearts. And we believe there's things you want to say, things you want to do, ways you want to reach into our lives and bring healing and hope and forgiveness and a clear vision for what you're calling us to do and how you're calling us to treat people in our lives. And so we submit all of that to you in prayer as we come to the table. In Jesus' name.